0: My temple name is Mu'un, and uh, the topic, in a way, is um, um, non-judgment and, um, uh, well, a kind of reflections on universal suffering, various examples. Um, some of it is not, uh, I don't know if it'll be hard to listen to, um, Because much of what I, if I get through all of this, is uh, sad and uh, but real, and um, so in the beginning, we want to remember someone I knew in the context of my academic work and in in in, in conferences. A woman from Hungary, Agnes Heller, who was a famous um, well-known social theorist and philosopher who had gone through everything, had lost her whole family in the Holocaust and never, never spent much time in Germany where I grew up and uh, many of the people she worked with very closely were German and never, never made a judgment about. Other than she knew that they were not supporters of, of Hitler, but otherwise she was no non-judgmental. I, I just learned that she uh, died. In she was 90, um, and she, she she went swimming. This is the story in the um, in the biggest lake in Hungary called uh, Banato. and she went swimming and didn't come back. She was 90, and I know what it was. Uh, It was about not being a burden to anyone, and and uh, having had a terrible and a good life, both at the same time. And uh, so I remember her as someone who was. in a sense, practiced non-judgment. Otherwise, of course, it is beginning to be fall, and the colder beginning of the colder part of the year, and there's you know the phrase about the season when the old ones die. As I'm eighty-one, I'm kind of <laughs> looking at this. Mm-hmm. I'm not particularly concerned, but it's uh, it gave it, it gave rise to some thoughts. So and I don't. Don't worry about me, I'm fine. (laughs) Uh, But here in the context of, I'm going to read some of this. Uh, It's kind of complicated. In the context of the practice in this temple, uh, we often hear we do not want to separate the good from the bad and vice versa. Or what we suppose is the good and the bad. I once learned this in this temple uh, long ago and when I began a few decades ago. Um, This also means not to separate young from old, and looking at you, most of you are certainly much younger than I am, Uh, and so the lesson to me was to embrace reality as a whole, undivided. Yet consider the following poem. It's in, I'm going to read it in the Spanish version. um, it's under the title, The Intendencia Poetica of, of the Office of the Poet. No es el turno de los astros, ellos han cumplido enseñándome a leer. Tengo una lengua en el firmamento y otra en la tierra. ¿Quién soy yo? ¿Quién soy yo? This translated. It, 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 so the office of the poet or poet, poetical office uh, it is not the turn of the stars. They have done what they are supposed to do. They have taught me to, to read. I have a, a, a tongue in the firmament, in the sky, and the other one in the earth. Who am I? Who am I? The poet is Mahmoud Darwish, and I say this after Agnes Haller, obviously, obviously was Hungarian Jewish. He's Palestinian. And very, very, uh, prominent Palestinian writer and uh, in the background of Kian Soyou, which we can generalize, who am I, who am I?" Uh, as, as a question as a questioning of oneself, his question, of course, the background is, who am I as someone who's been dispossessed, whose uh, home in the, in the West Bank, which has existed there for centuries, family home, no longer exists due to the Israeli occupation. So you see no non-judgment here, there, many places. Um, I thought of this because of the, uh, this, this theme of non-judgment. He doesn't judge. He just says, who am I? I am displaced. That comes through in other poems. I'm displaced. I've lost my home. But he doesn't blame. So again, I'm not saying he doesn't, he never blames. I don't know that I haven't read all his poems. But um, he just lets it be the way he is, who he is as a person uprooted from the country in which uh, there is a long history in Arabic of poetry. Of course, the poem was translated into Spanish. It was written originally in Arabic, and it was translated in Cuba. Also interesting. Um, so there is, there is another uh, comment that he, he, he another verse where he refers to an ancient olive tree a thousand years old, which made me think I kind of felt an affinity to an ancient olive tree gnarled and, uh, and uh, sort of uh, having survived many things and um, thought could one, instead of becoming hard, could one be um, sort of remain sensitive and vulnerable in old age and not in a sense try to, to become cynical. And uh, so uh, I found in this context, with respect to this question, um, the haiku. So that is one of these famous Japanese poems that are where the premium is to be as short as possible. That is, as few words as possible, and just to let the silence behind the words speak, but it's an extremely highly developed art, which i don 't think anyone has ever mastered in the west and uh, and it was especially in its in its best period the sixteenth and seventeenth century that uh, and this is one by the most famous of the Haiku poets, and then also was a zen i don 't know I would call him a Zen monk teacher wandering monk, something like that. He uh, but uh, sort of extraordinarily unconventional. And this is the, this is the text, the, the short poem. On the, on the withered branch, a crow has perched autumn evening. And you forgive me, but I kind of associate with the crow, an old crow sitting on, withered, on the withered branch. And the interpretation given in by... I in, uh, found the poem in a text from the Upaya Zen Center, and the interpretation given by Sensei Kass Tanashi, if you've ever looked at that website, uh, Japanese Zen teacher there, he refer, says this is about universal solitary loneliness and the beauty of old age. Well, I thought that was nice. I felt kind of reassured. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure that that is actually the case. I have my doubts that that Basho that would agree on the withered branch a crow has perched. It's probably not about at all about the crow, but uh, the crow is there. So am I in, in old age. So it made me think then um, one reaction to pain, suffering, old age is a kind of stoicism. When we use that word, today in English, we forget what the the, the history of it is. The Stoics were a school, I, I hope I'm not uh, most of you probably know this already, but um, I'll just say in any case, uh, Stoicism was a school of philosophy, practical <laughs> philosophy which developed in Greece in the third century, so few couple of centuries after the Buddha, the beginnings of Greek philosophy really coincide with the Buddha. So much of, not just Western, but Middle eastern thought had its origin at the same time as the Buddha taught. And I often think about that, that one should learn to move between both worlds, not choose between the East, the East against the West, the West against the East. We'd have to live in a universal culture in our times and, um, so, Stoics were the ones who tried to find, translate philosophy into, after Plato, which was extremely, incom- philosophy incredibly comprehensive and extremely um, dedicated to theory. That's hard to interpret. It's very different from what we call theory. But it had to mean, it when it was the philosophy of the Hellenic age, practical emphasis on self-discipline, how to uh, control the passions, how to um, uh, not worry, and the famous case is that of Seneca, the Roman philosopher in the time of Nero who, when Nero ordered him to kill himself, which is in a fact, he, was, he, he, uh, he calmly took a bath and cut his veins which was the classical Roman way to, to to show that one would not be disturbed even by death and one's own death. And well, I tell this because one of my old, two oldest friends is um, an American, I, I was in high school in the United States for one year as an exchange student from Germany, Michael Zick, he is uh, Polish and I was German and we never had a problem despite the devastation that Hitler's army caused in Poland, we never, he never judged. We had developed a relation, a very good relation to this day, since 1955. Michael is um, now taking care of his wife, who has severe Alzheimer's, very severe Alzheimer's. It's a very hard life for him. He lives in Colorado in the mountains, actually. He doesn't, He has no free time. When he leaves her for a couple of hours, she may wander out of the house and disappear. He once took her into Boulder, Colorado. I encouraged him, I said, go to Boulder. There are many meditation centers in Boulder. It might be good for him. He said, yes, but he cannot. Because he once went there, what she did is she walked across the street and just wandered away. Mm -hmm. And one didn't know where she would go. So if he didn't stay close to her, she might just be run over by a car. So he decided that, he turns to Stoicism. He said, I, I need a philosophy. And I said, no, you need something more practical than philosophy. But he said, no, I want a philosophy and Stoicism is the philosophy. That's the best philosophy that is in, in reaction to the situation. So I was thinking, what, what is the difference, really, between meditation practice, Buddhist practice, Stoicism? People might, I don't know if anyone would do that here, I'm not suggesting any of us would, but it may be possible to think that um, meditation practice and Buddhism would have to do with something, develop stoic attitudes, i.e. to control one's feelings, one's fears, one's anxieties, and, and so on. And then, so to speak, master in one, become master in one's own house which was the project of the Stoics in the, you know, 2,000 years ago. Uh, And I I imagine people from the outside might might associate Buddhism with this. That is, uh, as attitudes of control toward pain, controlling pain, aging death. and I, I remember something that the founder of this temple once said, where he said, I'm not afraid, for there is a universe, i.e. no matter what disaster strikes this earth, about which we hear, of course, much now in the time of the, our growing awareness of climate change. Um, that may be interpreted as a stoic, a stoic, stoic statement, almost uh, you know, very much like distancing oneself from the troublesome here and now, but I don't think that is what it means. It means seeing one's own life, our human life, as part of a web of existence and non-existence, in which holding on to a distinction between the two no longer makes sense. But then back to our everyday world and so on. Um, in, in a book, you may have known of this author, oh, Stephen Batchelor, who oh, there's a couple of books I have been reading recently on which deal with Buddhism. And this book is called Secular Buddhism, Secular Buddhism. Imagining the Dharma in an Uncertain World. And there he reports something which was very, very shocking for me. Uh, Because I had an awareness of the people involved. It's an essay which really doesn't talk much about Buddhism directly. called The Convenient Fact Fiction, and it calls, actually talking about enigma, that is the riddle, the mystery of of human existence. It refers to two people I had heard of in in Germany at the time, 1989, when the Eastern Bloc disintegrated, when uh, the the wall in Berlin uh, was torn down, and uh, there were two people an American German woman, Petra Kelly, and her partner, um, a German, um, I've uh, Gerd Bastian, who was it, had been a general in the post-war German army, but had left the military. And they both had the project, and together with others, that after this m- huge change, something new could be done, that the two Germanies could be brought together, and they could be neither part of the East, nor of the West, so that the whole philosophy of confrontation and constant preparation for war, which I lived through in my youth, you know, this permanent, permanent uh, 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 passing of, of jets, which, which you knew sometimes had nuclear bo- bombs in them, from, from close to the border of France toward the East German border. When I studied in Heidelberg, you could hear them come about twice a week. and. Uh, So that whole situation had to be overcome. And the way to overcome it was um, for them to develop a project that would no longer um, be linked to the East or the West and that Germany would be something different, neither NATO nor the the Soviet system. And, of course, it didn't go anywhere. Because the politicians got hold of the product and it became something very quickly, something else. Um, so then something terrible happened. Um, it, it, it turns, it, it's not clear, no one really knows the whole story, but it seems the man, Gerrit Bastian, shot uh, Petra Kelly, his partner. He killed her, and then he killed himself. And it had to do, it seems, with their loss of hope, but no one really knows. And Batchelor, who had met them twice, Stephen Batchelor is an author who writes about Buddhism and has had a long history of long, intensive practice in, in Tibet and in Korea. Um, he reflects on this. And what interests me is how he responds to the situation. He didn't know these two people very well, but he had become interested in their project. He wanted to understand it. He wanted to talk more with them. This is what he says in the end of a couple of pages on this terrible, terrible event. He says, I cannot reconcile the memory of those two compassionate and vital people sitting across the cafe table with the image of their bullet-pierced decomposing corpses. I cannot accept that I would not have noticed at least some indication of the fate that would befall them four days later. And he says, and listen to this carefully, I cannot bear the awful possibility that people so committed to the exposure of injustice and the relief of suffering might be presenting a brave facade that controls their own unbearable agony. It's a beautiful, beautiful comment in my view, which is not judging, no judgment. He's trying to understand, and even in the failure to understand, he's continuing to try to understand. So, um, we should not confuse then, um, the proper, I guess, what I would see as a, Uh, an outcome of a a good practice we would not confuse it with stoicism. It is not I do remember an event here in this temple too when someone died and how much sadness and sorrow was expressed in a sense of heartbreak. So what is it that one learns from this? That there are uh, that That what the path that my friend Michael in Colorado is, is searching is he wants to escape the suffering that he is confronted with every day and not just his wife's. And it's very hard. I mean, I don't know people here, maybe people here know more about Alzheimer's than I. Uh, it is not, not necessarily visible that the person suffers, but all the things I've heard about it are that they actually suffer quite deeply. And just given that certain capacities to express emotions have been lost, uh, people don't realize that. So Michael has his own suffering and his wife's, and he carries this burden, and he looks for a solution in stoicism. I, like Matthew, who is totally not, not judgmental to this terrible, with respect to this terrible event, I would say, I don't know what to say to Michael. We talk on the phone. And uh, I, um, you know, I always because he always follows an intellectual path, and then I realized, well, I guess right now there is no alternative for him. He cannot find another way. I thought if he would spend more time in Boulder with some of the meditation groups and so on, maybe he would. But for one thing, it's practically very difficult, and because it's it's uh, he's up in the mountains, and it's quite a quite a drive to get to Boulder. And uh, on the other hand, also, on the other hand, I, I don't, that's the ta- that's the turn he takes. So I kind of participate in this intellectual quest, if you might say, even if I think it is not the solution. So um, so I thought it's, when uh, I think of the Buddha's word, to tread the path with care, which Batchelor uses a lot. Tread the path with care, I always think, it means to be very mindful of the importance of, of human emotions to not think that any kind of practice would ever um, free us from the, both the burden and the possibilities that uh, our, the presence of emotions gives to human beings. This is who we are. We cannot escape being upset feeling hurt, uh, being worried, and just to speak of the things, that, the troublesome things that I've come across in preparing this this talk. I, I, I was quite uh, kind of uh, worried that I wouldn't know how to approach this topic. I still am not sure that I have a good way. Uh, so, but that's part of what one learns, right? One never knows quite knows what is the best thing to do. We always end up doing second best, and that's good enough, I think. So, um, to put this uh, in a, in a different way, um, um, this is kind of the very a, a common, almost uh, uh, maybe a bit not too serious when I say that I interpret the Buddha's statement about you know, uh, take uh, walk the path with care and in Latin America there's very frequently one hears the phrase se hace el camino caminando, the path is made in the, in the course of walking. And that I think you know is a good good comment as well. A path that is made in walking which does not exist before we walk and I don't know, we don't know where it will end and uh, how we will end following this path. So I treated myself with this uh, old crow sitting on the withering branch. Uh, and I, all I can tell you is sometimes I feel yes, it would be nice to be young, but on the other hand, things are fine. You know, I, I have the great fortune of not being sick and uh And I know that 's much more difficult, and in my family there are lots of things like that now. my extended family, so to speak, this reaches across countries and uh, through my through my wife and there are there is much agony because the family has been displaced uh, mm-hmm. through a conflict, a bitter conflict in colombia and um never, never found roots again anywhere else, and uh, even if they find ways to survive. And uh, one, of course, worries especially about the younger people in countries that are in, in constant turmoil, and, uh, and one also the bad part of that is being the old crow, is I don't have, I don't, I'm not as resourceful anymore as I would have been when I was younger. Well, that's as far as I can go today and uh, thank you for listening.